Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this afternoon from a rather cool, blustery day here in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's episode, we continue our investigation into the actual science behind the Earth's ever-changing climate, focusing on the science regarding the CO2 molecule, and we will work to continue to provide clear evidence to counter the alarmist mainstream narrative. We are very fortunate today to have Dr. William Happer on the show today. Dr. Happer earned a BSc in physics from the University of North Carolina in 1960 and a PhD degree in physics from Princeton University in 1964. That same year, he began his academic career in the Columbia University Physics Department, and in 1980, he joined the faculty of Princeton University. Dr. Happer is a physicist who specializes in the study of atomic physics, optics, and spectroscopy, and has published over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers. In what has become a trademark in all of his research, Dr. Happer combines experimental measurements with the development of rigorous theoretical models and simple intuitive explanations. From 1991 to 93, Dr. Happer was the Director of Energy Research at the U.S. Department of Energy, overseeing a budget of $3 billion. Returning to Princeton after his time at the Department of Energy, he served as the Eugene Higgins Professor of Physics and the Chair of the University Research Board from 1995 until 2005. From 2003 until his retirement in 2014, he held the Cirrus Fogg Bracket Chair of Physics. Dr. Happer, it's a real honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time and welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Glad to join you. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, you've had a very interesting life. Um, I was doing some background uh, research on you, and it, it looks like you were you were born overseas and, and uh, were somewhat of a, a base brat, I guess, growing up. Um, do you yeah. want to provide, provide some of those uh, details to the listeners uh, so we can learn a little bit more about you? Well, I hope we'll talk mostly about physics, but I was born in India. My uh, parents were both doctors. My father was a uh, British uh, physician in the Indian Army, and my mother was a med medical missionary. And uh, so I was born just before uh, World War II broke out, which uh, for the first year or two, the only opposition to the Axis powers was Britain, which was my father's country. And it looked like the Japanese were going to invade India at the time. And so he sent me and my mother who was pregnant at the time with my younger brother back to America where she was from, she was an American. And uh, she needed a job. So when we got to America, she worked at the um, Oak Ridge uh, branch of the uh, Manhattan Project. And so I, that's probably why I got interested in physics because as a toddler, I saw all of the uh, chemists and physicists and mathematicians and uh, glass blowers. <laughs> you know, it seemed like a very romantic way to make a living if I was good enough to do it. And so I uh, tried, and here I am, many, many years later. <laughs> yeah, that's that's excellent. Well, that's how I started. <laughs> that's excellent. So it was a bit of a osmosis uh, delivering the, the the love of physics to you. Yeah, that's great. So you, you've been harshly criticized as being a climate change denier. Uh, what is your simple response to your critics? Well, I I don't know what uh, a denier means. You, you know, climate changes all the time. It's been changing since the world was. Uh, formed, it will continue to change. So there's not very much that humans can do to stop it. And, um, you know, the climate change movement, uh, there are some sincere, decent people in it, you know, uh, uh, many of them are misguided. Many of them are uh, um, intimidated, you know, to go against the, uh, the crowd and be labeled a denier like me. Uh, uh, 
but in general, it, it's nonsense. You know, it really has nothing to do with uh, the environment or uh, making the world better. It, it's uh, it's a racket, you know, and so uh, just I, another racket. Just another racket. Yeah, yeah. The world is full of rackets. <laughs> it, se it seems that way. It seems that way. Um, so. Uh, while I was doing some, again, doing some research on, on who you were and, and your, your stance on things, I came across a, a rather interesting CNN interview uh, featuring you and Bill Nye. And, you know, that, that's not really a, a fair uh, debate. You know, you've got a, a, an eminent uh, physicist and a, and a television personality. <clears throat> and to me, this really sort of uh, encapsulates what the, bo the bogus mainstream narrative is really all about. And one thing that really stood out for me in this interview was when uh, Mr. Nye uh, admits that science is political. And doesn't this in some way amount to an admission of guilt for the backers of uh, the climate alarmism? Well, um, for climate alarmism, most of the, uh, most of the heat is not science at all. It's, it's very similar to a religion, as many people have pointed out. You know, uh, these days, uh, the traditional religions are having a hard time holding on to their flock and people seem to have an inborn need to believe in something beyond themselves and so if you can't believe in your parents religion at least you can believe in saving the planet you know that's a good goal to believe in and so many people have been captured by that you know they feel very virtuous and uh, they don't really understand <laughs> what they're pushing but it makes them feel good. And yeah, you know, you should never mess with someone's religion. And so that's part of the problem with people like me is that when you say, well, what, what you're proposing is not supported by science, they're saying, well, are you, you denying, you know, that uh, Muhammad spoke to God or that, you know, you know, that are you denying the virgin birth? You know, it's something like that, you know, and so, <laughs> Um, sure, that's sure. the sort of thing you're denying. That's the way the word denier is used in this. Certainly. And, and really all that you're denying, and let's, let's put that in quotes, is the fact that, you know, you are, or you are having some issues with the climate modeling that they are, have proposed, because really that's, the alarmists have little else to rely on other than a series of um, unreliable models. Is that correct? Uh, that, that's correct. I mean, it's, uh, again, it's like religion that, uh, you, you put out all these stories about heaven and hell, you know, and uh, you go do what we say, you know, you can count on heaven and otherwise you're going to hell. And in this case, you know, hell is, is these models that they put together. Uh, they don't very, make very much sense, the, uh, you know, to be a little kind to them, you know, the climate really is very difficult to model, you know, it's uh, the atmosphere with all of its turbulence and currents and the ocean with its currents and the sun, which um, maybe we understand well enough, maybe we don't, you know, there are just many, many factors in it. And to uh, say that I can uh, make a model that is reliable enough that it's okay for everyone in the world to surrender their liberty, uh, surrender their uh, you know, pursuit of happiness and all the other things that uh, we used to think we could uh, aspire to, but we have we have to give all that up to save the planet. You know, and of course there are a few favored few who don't have to give up anything. You know, they ride around in their yachts and fly around in their charter planes. Many of them are billionaires or movie stars, and uh, yeah, complete phonies. 
Yeah, they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, I guess John Kerry might be uh, one of those flying yeah, around in a private Kerry, jet. Kerry is definitely <laughs> one of them. Yeah. So, and, and, uh, you know, there would the one of the concepts that was proposed is that if the U.S. doesn't keep up with other nations in terms of their pursuit of renewable energy, uh, that they may be left behind. Is there any validity to that claim? No, of course not. I mean, it's, uh, you know, like my mother used to tell me, you know, the other kids are doing this or doing that. And uh, my mother said, well, you can't do it because it's bad for you. And uh, so it's... It, at least in my case, was an argument I tried to use when I was three years old, and it was a bad argument then. It's a bad argument now. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, I can't, can't, uh, can't slight that one. So, and then furthermore, are there any evidence to support their claims that storms, floods, droughts uh, are all on the rise and the magnitude has become greater because of uh, no, the no, spectrum no, of CO2? Very, very good data on that. And the, there's no change in extreme weather. Even the IPCC you know, has been embarrassed to try to claim that. But the data isn't there, you know. We've always had tornadoes, we've always had hurricanes, uh, and we always will, and for very fundamental reasons, you know, you've got this complicated fluid system that's being heated by the sun and on a turning earth, and so you can't avoid these things. Yes, yes. So let, let, we'll leave some of that political discussion behind and let's get into some of the uh, the physics of the situation. Uh, first off, can, can you walk us through the energy budget of the atmosphere and, and in terms of what happens with the, the incoming solar radiation and, and how the various constituents of the atmosphere affect yeah. it, including the earth, and then how much how, how it all how that works in terms of the, the energy mm -hmm. balance? Well, I think we all know that uh, we owe our life on earth to, to the sun. You know, it's interesting that many early civilizations, the Egyptians, you know, had deified the sun. There was a sun god and, and it was all over the world. I think the Aztecs had the same concept. Uh, and uh, without the sun, the, uh, the earth would be much too cold for life. Uh, but the heat coming in from the sun uh, has to be uh, released somewhere, you know, if you just continued solar heating of the earth, it would soon melt. So that heat uh, is radiated back into space, but at longer wavelengths than the sun. You can see most sunlight, it's in the, the region of the spectrum our eyes can see. But uh, I think we're all familiar with the fact that there are longer wave radiations that you can't see, but you can feel very well. For example, if you stand beside a hot stove, you can feel the heat coming from the stove, even if it's not glowing, maybe it's glowing a dull red, but uh, there's no question that it's putting out a lot of heat, you can feel it. And so that's the kind of heat the earth puts out, this invisible long wave thermal radiation. People have also known about that for many centuries. And um, that heat uh, is emitted just by just about by everything's emitted by the surface. It's emitted by molecules in the atmosphere, the greenhouse molecules. And uh, that takes away just the right amount of heat from the sun to give us an equitable temperature on earth, the kind of planet we'd like to live on. Uh, you know, if you go to Mars, it only gets about half the uh, sunlight that we do. So Mars is too cold for life. and. Uh, uh, the other important thing about the atmosphere, it, it not only um, 
moderates the uh, flow of cooling radiation from the Earth back into space, but it equalizes the temperature more or less between night and day and between the, the daylight side of the Earth and the uh, dark side of the Earth. Unlike the moon, for example, the moon is the same distance from the sun as we are. And yet, you know, it's beastly hot at noon on the moon and it's, it's you know, unbearably cold at midnight on the moon, you know, and either extreme is just terrible, but we don't have those extremes on earth because of the oceans and the atmosphere, which smooth out the, the heat load between day and night, uh, to some extent between summer and winter. Uh, so uh, the um, furor over climate uh, is because uh, someone noticed that uh, the, the molecules that affect the cooling of the earth, uh, they're called greenhouse molecules uh, because they're for the most part transparent to sunlight, you can see through them, but they're not transparent to this thermal radiation, the, the heat radiation that's going out into space. So they affect the heat radiation going out, they don't affect the sunlight coming in and so by far the most important greenhouse gas is water vapor. And if you add to water vapor, the clouds that form from water vapor, you know, water dominates the uh, greenhouse effects on Earth by far. But then uh, the next most important one is uh, carbon dioxide. And uh, carbon dioxide doesn't make that much difference if they're clouds because the clouds are doing most of the um, heavy lifting. But if there's clear sky, carbon dioxide is about 30% of the greenhouse effect of water vapor. On average, it, you know, it's uh, more at the poles where there's not much water vapor and uh, it's less you know, at the equator where things tend to be very humid. It, so uh, the, the idea came, well, uh, we can uh, maybe control, I'm being a little cynical because I don't know who made what decision, but certainly some people thought of CO2 as the ideal way to control the, you know, the population. You know, we, um, we can't control the admission to heaven and hell the way the medieval church did, but we can control, <laughs> you know, the climate. And, uh, and so people better watch out if they don't do what we say, you know, we'll burn them at the stake, you know, like they did in the medieval days. And so, you know, by about the 1970s, early 80s, people began to seize on CO2 as, uh, as a hook, you know, to gain control of, uh, of the world, of the people. And uh, they began to talk up you know, the planet is going to fry and, you know, so the early name was global warming. Yeah, everybody talked about global warming, we're all going to boil to death or fry to death. And, but the Earth uh, refused to warm at anything like the uh, rates that had been predicted by the models. It was clearly uh, not at all what the model said. And so they quietly changed global warming to climate change. And that was useful because anything that happens, you can say is climate change. You have a tornado come through and that's obviously climate change. We didn't used to have tornadoes or you have a hurricane that comes in, you know, that's also climate change. Didn't used to have hurricanes, you know, all, all of it, of course, is nonsense. It's not true. You know, we've had hurricanes uh, 
on the east coast of America as long as their records and long before before there were even records the worst hurricane at all was the the year before the end of the American Revolution it killed some 20,000 people you know especially in the Caribbean and actually played a role in the end of the uh, revolution because uh, the the British couldn't believe that the French would be stupid enough to put their fleet out right in the peak of hurricane season, which is when Cornwallis was trying to escape, you know, through to Virginia. But the French being the French um, uh, took the fleet out anyway, (laughs) and they blockaded him. And so that was the end. And it had uh, it had connections to climate and to weather. Uh, You can read about it actually in uh, Barbara Tuchman's uh, book, The First Salute, which uh, is a very interesting story about that period. And um, so anyway, uh, uh, CO2 has been uh, singled out as the villain in all of this, a little bit like witches or the devil in the medieval times. And it's a very improbable villain. You know, we all uh, are based on carbon, you know, (laughs) you and I are mostly carbon you know, and oxygen and hydrogen. Uh, I guess we're mostly oxygen because the weight of the water, but if you don't count water, it's mostly carbon. And uh, we breathe out about a little more than two pounds of CO2 a day. So if CO2 is a pollutant, every human being is issuing a a lot of pollution. What, there are eight billion people around that in the world. And so multiply with that by two pounds or 16 billion pounds a day that humans are uh, breathing out this horrible pollutant, you know, sounds you get, terrible. Of course, it's, it's not terrible at all. You know, it's uh, a, you, have, you have to be careful with that statement or all we're all going to be taxed for the carbon that we're admi- that, that, emitting that's personally. Correct. It, <laughs> indeed, it's correct. Yeah, yeah. So if, so, if we can take a look at the harmless, it's a it's a benefit to Earth. For sure, for sure. So can we take a look at the work of Max Planck and, and Carl Schwarzschild uh, in yes. terms of their work on the thermal dynamics of the atmosphere right, and, right, and right. how that, that I mean, to me, that uh, was a very interesting piece in terms of how uh, the various gases contribute to the effects that they, they have. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's very interesting uh, part of the history of science. Uh, you know, thermodynamics um, was a little bit late in developing uh, Newton didn't pay a lot of attention to thermodynamics, uh, nor did the classical French mathematical physicists, you know, Lagrange, Laplace, but uh, actually about the time of the American Revolution and and onward, people began to take uh, thermodynamics more seriously, partly because of the invention of the steam engine. And so, for example, uh, James Watt, who was uh, uh, you know, a, a Scottish uh, engineer uh, knew a lot about thermodynamics. People think of him as a tinkerer, but in fact, he had the equivalent of a PhD. I mean, he worked for Joseph Black in Edinburgh in the 1850s and 60s. Joseph Black bankrolled his efforts to build steam engines back in Glasgow. And um, Watt knew perfectly well what the latent heat of water was and what the heat capacity of seal was. So he knew, he knew a lot about thermodynamics. And uh, in those days, uh, people realized that heat transfer, which you needed to run a, a heat engine, a steam engine, for example, uh, uh, 
had three main mechanisms. There was just direct contact conduction. You know, if you dip a silver spoon into hot coffee, coffee, you know, the, you, the handle soon gets very hot and um, doesn't get as hot if it's stainless. So you can tell whether it's real silver or not by how quickly it heats up. Uh, and uh, you can transfer heat also by just moving the hot fluid. So that's what Watt did, he injected hot steam into his engines and uh, his real invention was a, a way to do that that did not waste so much heat the way the predecessor engines had. And finally, there, there is radiation, the one of, of interest to climate and uh, global warming. And even uh, Watt and his crew also knew a lot about radiation too. So they, they knew about all of these things back in around 1800 give or take a few decades. And um, well, uh, to continue the story, uh, steam engines really drove the development of thermodynamics and the idea of, uh, uh, of entropy, which was central to it. And uh, so that was developed by 1840, 1850 by uh, uh, Kelvin in, in uh, in Britain and by, uh, uh, especially by Carnot, he was the pioneer in France, but later on by uh, uh, many very bright German uh, uh, physicists, Clausius in particular. And, uh, and all, you know, again, by complete chance, uh, uh, the theory of electromagnetism developed almost simultaneously with the thermodynamics. So people began to understand electromagnetic waves thanks to Maxwell. And uh, so building on uh, experimental work with Faraday, Maxwell cracked the code. So Maxwell's equations were clearly right and thermodynamics was clearly right. But there was just one problem. Well, if you put these together to try to describe thermal radiation, the thermal radiation from the earth, for example, it uh, predicted infinite radiation. You know, it was clearly, <laughs> clearly completely wrong. Uh, the, the problem was that it predicted the radiation would increase uh, with increasing radiation frequency without limit and uh, in, almost independent of temperature. So it was called the ultraviolet catastrophe or, you know, it had various names, but it was, everyone kind of kept quiet about it. They knew it was, it, it didn't make any sense. It, they knew there was some fundamental flaw in physics as they understood it in 1880, 1890. And uh, the guy who um, fixed that problem was Max Planck. And so what Max Planck was trying to understand is how does, um, thermal radiation worked. You know, if you put a piece of steel in, in the charcoal of a, a smithy's forge, it gets red hot and then it gets yellow hot and you can beat on it with a hammer and put any shape you like on it and it's emitting radiation like crazy. But it's a very well-defined radiation pattern which you can measure. And, and so people knew about those patterns. They knew how the radiation varied with wavelength and, and frequency by 1900 but they couldn't understand why it, it didn't, uh, didn't agree with uh, uh, theory and it was way off. It, I mean, much, much further off than climate models are with, <laughs> with climate. It, it was just grotesque. So Planck realized that you could solve this problem 
if uh, radiation were forced to be emitted in quanta. So that's where the idea of quantum mechanics came from, that when an atom radiates, it can't radiate just a tiny amount of blue light. It, it has to radiate a quantum of blue light that has a finite amount of energy. If you make that single assumption, then you can fix all these problems in uh, classical physics. Yeah. Electricity and magnetism agrees with thermodynamics, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a huge discovery. And it's interesting that it came from looking at radiation. It didn't come from particle accelerators or radioactivity or things that you associate with quantum mechanics now, or even you know the Bohr atom, all of that came quite a bit later. It, it came from thermal radiation. It was a real uh, practical problem that they were solving. That, that's right. It was a practical problem. It, it didn't matter that much for steam engine, but it mattered a little bit. Uh, and it, it was um, about that time that Schwarzschild came into the picture too. Uh, Schwarzschild, Karl Schwarzschild was a German physicist and he served in the uh, German army on the Russian front during uh, World War One, And in fact, for the poor guy, he died uh, before the end of the war, not from uh, Russian bullets, but because of a horrible autoimmune disease that he inherited. But he was a brilliant physicist and, uh, and he was the one who figured out uh, how greenhouse gases work. So he wrote down the fundamental equation and showed how to solve it for how the earth radiates if it's full of water vapor and clouds in, in its atmosphere. So I like to call that particular radiation pattern the, the Schwarzschild spectrum because it's, uh, it goes back to Carl Schwarzschild. Uh, you know, he, among other things, he wrote down the first analytic solution to Einstein's general theory of relativity. You know. So he was, if he had lived longer, God knows what he would have done. It, it was a tragic loss. It, it, there were many good people lost in World War I, you know, not just physicists. It was a, a tragedy. Again, very, very poor leadership you know, by the human race. Uh, uh, and we're seeing the same thing with climate. <laughs> that poor leadership seems to tend, uh, has continued to, to yes, present day. Right. It has continued, yeah. yeah. So, and then what is there, the, the, so the, the Schwarzschild spectrum then and that curve um, shows that there, let's say if we double CO2 from 400 to 800, there really isn't much difference. And, and why is that? It's not, so we don't, we don't get a yeah. doubling of the greenhouse effect. Why is it that, that when we get this yeah, doubling yeah, it's, of CO2? It's really amazing if you double CO2 from 400 to 800, that's a 100% increase. And that decreases the radiation going to outer space so it means the Earth will have to get warmer to compensate, but the decrease in radiation to outer space is only 1%. So a 100% increase in CO2 only decreases radiation to space by 1%. And the, this, the people who actually know anything on the alarmist side, they've known this for a long, long time. This is not new. It's just that it, you know, it's not talked about in polite company, the, the fact that this, uh, uh, this greenhouse effect is so small, you're trying to turn this 1% uh, mole into a mountain, you know, that frightens everyone. And uh, it's very hard to turn that into a, a dangerous effect, you know, because uh, to do it, they've had to invent all sorts of positive feedbacks to turn this little tiny effect of doubling CO2 
of radiation into some big effect that increases the surface temperature by three degrees, five degrees, you know, even 10 degrees, you know, it, it doesn't. And, and uh, you know, if you just were to look at it unbiased, it, it, you can't believe they got the sign right because most feedbacks turn out to be negative. You know, there's uh, something called Le Chatelier's principle, which says that if you change conditions of uh, some physical system that's interacting, it will try to react in such a way as to resist the change instead of to amplify the change. So it's, it's unusual uh, to find positive feedback. It, it does exist, but it, it's very unusual. And so that also should, you know, have given people pause when they were first told that, uh, you know, carbon dioxide is a pollutant and it's going to fry the earth and uh, all of these other uh, horror stories. Uh, they didn't make much sense, uh, you know, a priori. And they make even less sense now that they've been more carefully studied. Sure. So what is the actual physics uh, which is happening or occurring uh, when we're doubling that that doesn't cause... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of people are mis... They uh, misunderstand re really what greenhouse gases do. They think that what they're doing is they're acting like a blanket to uh, keep radiation from the Earth's surface, you know, like a hot hot-bellied stove from shining out into space and, and, and cooling things down. And um, what they forget is that the gases themselves uh, are quite good radiators. And so the CO2 uh, in the Earth's atmosphere practically doesn't make any difference what, it, what the Earth's uh, temperature is. Uh, it, the CO2 itself is radiating from the lower stratosphere you know, above 10, 11 kilometers. And uh, if you look down from a satellite, that's what you see from CO2. You don't see the surface at all. You only see the radiation altitude CO2. And so one, one of the reasons that um, CO2 is so ineffectual is that the lower stratosphere is almost, uh, to use a, a jargon, a term isothermal. It's nearly the same temperature from 10 to 20 kilometers. That's very different from our lower atmosphere, the troposphere, where, you know, if you go from the surface, if you go up, it gets cool very rapidly. That's why you go to the mountains in the summer to cool off. But that doesn't happen in, in the lower stratosphere. If you go up, it doesn't change temperature. In fact, eventually it gets hotter as you go up. So everything is different where CO2 radiates than your condition reflexes are. So CO2 is sitting up there and it, it, it is affecting radiation, but not where it makes very much difference to the surface of the earth. And so the, the key physics that, uh, if you really want to understand this quantitatively, uh, you have to understand is that the greenhouse gases themselves are radiating and they're not simply absorbing surface radiation, but they themselves are emitting radiation at, at higher altitudes. You, you don't think that, about that so much because uh, your conditioned reflexes are based on uh, visible radiation, which you can see. So for example, if you have a red heart piece of iron, you know, from a Smithy's forge and you put a, a black screen in front of it, you know, that blocks out all the light. You don't see the, <laughs> you don't see the red hot iron behind it. But, you know, the atmosphere is like if you put the screen there and the screen itself gets red hot. So 
it's true you don't see the red hot iron behind it, the, the red hot horseshoe, for example, but you see that the screen that's supposed to shield you has also gotten red hot. So it too is glowing red hot. And so it doesn't, uh, it doesn't shield at all. It, it re-emits radiation. And, and so that's what's going on. And you, you could imagine that putting all that together, which is what Carl Schwarzschild did, you know, is a little bit complicated because it depends on frequency, on the color of the light. And uh, it depends very much on the temperature profile of the atmosphere, how, how the temperature drops as you go from the surface to 10 kilometers and how it's constant above that. So all of that you have to put in and get it right. It's not terribly complicated, but it, it you know, you can't do it on, a, you know, on the back of an envelope. And uh, so uh, I, I, uh, I don't know what quite more I can say about it, but. Uh, no, I think I think that's uh, that's a good summation of that. Um, so it, it sounds then there's a a sat almost a saturation point then that we've reached now with CO two, where adding more CO two to the system isn't going to have a an appreciable effect. Yeah, yeah, doubling CO two is about a one percent effect. Uh, instant, they like to say instantaneously doubling, because uh, you can calculate that easily, and uh, the. Uh, uh, once you do that, ho however, the I mentioned that most of the effect of CO2 is in the stratosphere, you know, high up. So the stratosphere doesn't have much uh, matter in it. The you know, pressure is very low, so it, it, it cools off very rapidly if you were to double CO2, because the CO2 is radiating a lot more uh, energy out of the stratosphere at 800 parts per million, twice today's value of than at 400 parts per million, what today's value is, or a little more than that. And so, you know, the first thing you do when you do these calculations is you, you do this instantaneous effect of CO2, and then you start adding in the, the responses of the atmosphere. The first and fastest will be a cooling of the uh, stratosphere. Um, it's not clear whether you can see that yet. I mean, uh, all of these effects are quite small and uh, I, I don't think there's any observational evidence that that has happened. I, I think it will happen, but I, haven't, I couldn't prove it by observation. So really then the, all of this climate alarmist hysteria is, is based on flawed computer model output. Is that, is that a correct assumption? Yeah, that, that's right. And uh, even with, without computer models, you know, the Earth has warmed and cooled and the CO2 levels have changed by huge amounts uh, uh, forever. You know, if you just take the, um, the Phanerozoic, you know, that, that is the uh, time period uh, since the Cambrian when we first started to have really good fossils. So you can figure out what life was like back then. There was certainly life before then, but there's not a very good fossil record. But during that period, 540 million years or so, CO2 levels have been you know, 5, 10, 20 times what they were now, and life flourished the whole time. So there was no uh, harm done to life. In fact, more CO2 were, were times of more verdant life. You know, there was uh, just more things able to grow then. Um, and the other thing it shows you is there are no tipping points. You know, people say, oh, well, yeah, but this is a, just a... 1% change, uh, yeah, that's not very much, but it's enough to sort of light off a, uh, 
an explosion of CO2. Well, that clearly a so-called tipping point. That doesn't happen because we've already done the experiment hundreds and hundreds of times in geological history. There are no tipping points observed. So, uh, you know, people need to um, really think hard about this and, and think for themselves rather than, you know, just swallowing this uh, uh, propaganda that is fire-hosed on them, you know, and there's lots of money to provide it, you know, and, the media is full of people, uh, you know, so-called reporters uh, whose only job is to spread alarm. You know, that's all they're there for. You know, there's, uh, there's propagandists. Pressure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so are, are, I mean, is, is the climate system just simply too complex or our understanding of it isn't great enough yet to model uh, by computer models? Is, is that part of the problem here? Or, or is it simply the, the well, information I mean, that they're... You can... For example, do a pretty good job with weather. That's not the same as climate, but you know, I look at the weather forecast where I am, and at least out to three or four days, it's pretty good. And uh, but for climate, you know, you're talking about what what is the climate going to be like in the year 2050 or 2100? You know, that's absurd to think that you you can't predict weather that far. You can't even predict weather, you know, a few weeks in advance, you know. And so, uh, um, so you know, they, the climate modelers like to pretend that climate is actually easier than weather because you get to average over all sorts of fluctuations. But uh, if you do that, then you're back to the... Uh, uh, incontrovertible fact that you doubling CO2 is only about a 1% effect, you know, so that that's averaging too, you know, so if you're going to do all this averaging, how is it that you've gotten the sign wrong for the feedback, you've got positive feedback, you know, and uh, 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 the argument, uh, the argument for feedback, uh, the first one that it actually made some sense was invented here at Princeton by uh, uh, Dr. Manabi at uh, Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory. And uh, Manabi pointed out that if a little surface warming uh, increases the amount of water vapor uh, at high altitudes, then uh, I, I mentioned that most of the radiation from the earth comes from greenhouse gases, not from the surface. So if there's more water vapor at higher altitudes and water vapor is the main greenhouse gas, that will mean that it's not radiating as well because the high altitudes are cold. You know, the temperature drops, you know, as you go up, uh, dry air, it's about, you know, 9.8 degrees per kilometer and moist air, it's very variable, but a, a typical number is maybe six and a half degrees. And so um, if you cool water vapor by, uh, several tens of degrees by moving it up to the upper atmosphere, then of course it will be less effective at cooling the earth. So that's the basic idea. The, the problem with the idea is that um, quantitatively, there, there's uh, not very good evidence that water vapor is doing that. You know, In fact, there's counter evidence. There's some evidence that the upper atmosphere is getting drier instead of wetter. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not a crazy hypothesis, but it, it does have to uh, 
rely on facts, you know, not on, on somebody's um, brilliant idea, you know. <laughs> reality, there is a reality out there, you know, a lot of people don't realize that uh, there's a real world out there and it will do what it's going to do no matter what the consensus uh, of right thinking people says. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. Or, the, or the left thinking people. Yeah. Um, so, and, and why is it then that the IPCC seems to rely solely on its models and, and has a, a reluctance to look at empirical observation and the data points that they generate? I mean, is, is that simply a political decision? Yeah, I, th I think it's largely political. The high levels of IPCC are, are really government appointees and they're you know, they're in those jobs in order to support government policy. Uh, to their credit, at, at uh, the working level, there are some really good scientists in IPCC, and um, I respect them, but their uh, voices are not heard in the uh, summaries for policy makers and, you know, the things that really get read by governments. And uh, if you read the uh, detailed reports, they tend to be a lot better than the summary for policymakers. They, they're nuanced, you know, they point out where there's some uncertainty there. There are, you know, some bad actors there too, but not, not so many. Interesting, interesting. And then can some of these uh, climate oscillations that we're seeing um, be accounted for by the El Nino or La Nina uh, cycles? Well, of course, uh, El Nino uh, cycle is a huge one, you know, every four or five years, uh, it causes effects all over the world, but especially in the US, you know, you get uh, wetter or drier summers in the Southeast, or you get more pineapple expresses in California, and it's tightly correlated to El Nino. You know, I, I think every, more people should know about El Nino. The, it has to do with the uh, Pacific equatorial ocean is this enormous expanse of water and in the western uh, Pacific near Indonesia and Australia there's uh, the winds the trade winds pile up really deep pool of warm water you know we just keeps blowing 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 from east to west and uh, the water's being hated by the sun and it's the equator so the sun is nearly overhead most of the time so you get a lot of hot water it's a real great solar heater but every four or five years, the, uh, the trade winds stop uh, or, or, or they lighten up quite a bit and that water uh, sloshes back uh, east toward the Americas to, uh, to Peru and to Ecuador. And uh, uh, so the entire Pacific Ocean then begins, gets much hotter because it's covered with this warm surface water that used to be deep warm water, you know, off Indonesia and Australia. And of course, it's, it's vaporizing water all over the place. And so it, it, you, they get heavy rains in uh, South America. And uh, so all, all and it, it even affects the North, you know, us in North America. So it, it's by far the biggest cycle uh, in our weather, our maybe short term climate, I guess you would call it. Yeah, and that's my point. I mean, some some of these movements within what the IPCC is recording and, and calling it global warming or climate change, I mean, is that simply part of our weather patterns that can be accounted for by these phenomena? I think so. No, and nobody, yeah. you know, there probably are much longer range uh, cycles. In fact, we know there are longer range cycles. Uh, since you're in British Columbia, maybe you've been to uh, Glacier Bay, but uh, if not, you know, 
you should go. And uh, that's a very good uh, lesson on long-term climate because it was first charted by Vancouver in the 1790s. And he was a very good navigator and his charts are still usable today. They're really good, but they show the coastline was right out into the Pacific at uh, Glacier Bay, the ice entirely filled the bay. Today, the bay, you can sail up there in a cruise ship, you know, right to the uh, places where the glaciers come down from the mountains and there's no ice in the bay at all. And uh, that ice uh, actually started to melt, you know, by 1800, you know, it had receded already a little bit from, uh, from what Vancouver charted 10 years before. You know, and by 1870s, uh, most of it was gone. And it was so dramatic that uh, John Muir uh, made a special trip to Alaska to try and understand why are all the glaciers melting. And bear in mind, this is uh, 1870, <laughs> long before there was any increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, and uh, he wrote a wonderful book, it's called Travels in Alaska. And uh, one of the chapters is on Glacier Bay. And he points out that this enormous uh, mass of ice that Vancouver noticed was all gone. And uh, there was open land now that used to be covered with ice. It was being recolonized by uh, uh, trees and, and grasses. And uh, so there, there was a cycle that uh, has come and gone several times. If you look at the geology of Glacier Bay, this has happened before. And the period, instead of being four years or five years like El Nino, it's many centuries. But uh, what exactly drives that is not clear. It, it, it was not driven for sure by uh, industrial emissions of CO2, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it happened and do, long before that began. And does that, does that ebb and flow um, match up at all with the, the solar cycles and the Maunder minimum and, and uh, the Dalton minimum? Is there any correlation there that you are aware of? Well, it, it did reach this current ice in Glacier Bay did reach its maximum uh, approximately at the time of the Maunder minimum. And so it's conceivable it might have had something to do with that. You know, I, I, I'm not I have not studied it carefully enough to, to say much more about it, but I do know that there are these long-term patterns that are enormous, have nothing to do with man, and uh, certainly are, are going to repeat, you know. The, for sure, so for I, sure. I'm, I'm sure that the ice will come back to Glacier Bay. Uh, I don't know when. At some point. So, and then compared to historic levels, is the earth uh, experiencing a, a CO2 famine or, or are we seeing an abundance of CO2? No, I, I would say that by historical levels, we're in a famine period. And uh, I'd already mentioned that uh, in the Phanerozoic, the last 540 million years or so, uh, CO2 levels have averaged much higher than now. 2,000, 3,000 parts per million it was more typical than what we have today, 400 parts per million. So we're way down. And at these levels, plants actually are struggling to uh, uh, grow uh, efficiently, especially the, the most common plants. They're, they're called C3 plants after uh, uh, Dr. Calvin at Berkeley, who first worked out photosynthesis. And uh, C3 plants have the most efficient photosynthetic uh, uh, 
method. And uh, they're called C3 because the first sugar you form has three carbons in it. And, uh, and that includes essentially all trees, uh, you know, most of our agricultural crops. And, and they're all losing something on the order of 25% of their efficiency because of the low CO2 levels. Uh, and so that has made it possible for uh, another type of plant with another a different type of photosynthesis called the C4 plants to uh, outcompete uh, the ordinary plants, the unsophisticated plants. And uh, some examples of that are American corn, maize, uh, sugarcane, pineapple. Uh, they tend to be plants that grow in hot, dry areas. And uh, so uh, their trick is that they have uh, figured out a way to bring the CO2 into their leaves uh, and, and into contact with the uh, enzyme that converts it into sugar uh, without letting oxygen in. And I, I should have prefaced this by saying a word or two about the oxygen problem. And that's interesting too. Uh, um, photosynthesis was uh, invented probably three, three and a half billion years ago. It's very, very old. You can see evidence in sediments and things like that, that photosynthesis was going on a long time ago. And at that time, there wasn't much oxygen in the air. So the oxygen in the air we breathe now is mostly the result of billions of years of photosynthesis. Uh, so when, when the key enzyme for photosynthesis, uh, which is called Rubisco, uh, it's, uh, that's an acronym, I won't try to spell it out, but it's, it, it takes carbon dioxide and water and energy from some source, you, from sunlight or photosynthesis, and converts the carbon dioxide and water into sugar. And, um, but it has a design flaw because it, uh, if it's short of carbon dioxide and it's sitting there primed up, ready to fire, you know, it's got all this chemical energy, say from sunlight, uh, if it can't find a CO2, it will take an oxygen molecule instead. It doesn't like oxygen, but it, if there's nothing else available, it'll take oxygen. And instead of turning the oxygen into sugars, it turns it into things that are like hydrogen peroxide. They're highly oxidizing and, and harmful for the plant. You know, you don't want to swallow hydrogen peroxide and the plant doesn't like hydrogen peroxide inside it either. So uh, plants have been coping with this ever since oxygen levels uh, began to increase, you know, uh, a couple billion years ago. And uh, the more oxygen there is, the more complicated biochemical pathways are required in plants to, uh, to cope with the oxidizing uh, products that are made when CO2 makes a mistake and, and grabs an oxygen instead of a, a CO2. So uh, one benefit of more CO2 for uh, plant life is it, it uh, lets the uh, C3 plants, all trees, you know, wheat, rice, soybeans, all of them uh, don't make this mistake and, and use oxygen uh, as often because there's more CO2. If there's a CO2, they get it and they use it so they don't do the the, the technical word is photorespiration. So photorespiration is bad for plants. Uh, 
three plants in particular. It's not a problem for C4 plants. They've evolved to get away from that problem. And um, so that, that's, a, that's a, a benefit that you can see all over the world. The world is greening, partly because of the suppression of photorespiration. But by far the most important benefit is um, more CO2 makes plants uh, tolerant to drought. And this, that's fairly easy to understand too, because the uh, CO2 that the plant needs to, for photosynthesize, for photosynthesis to make sugar, to make the other molecules of life, has to come from the air. So every plant leaf is full of little holes, the stomata, the little mouths, you know, in, from Greek. And uh, into these little holes, uh, molecules of CO2 diffuse from the air outside. But the hole is open, and so for every CO2 molecule that diffuses in, maybe 100 water molecules diffuse out. So it lets CO2 come in, but it lets water leak out, so it dries out the plant. And so when you add more CO2, plants grow leaves with fewer holes in them, fewer stomata, or it takes the stomata that it has and they closes them up partially. And so again, in both cases, you leak less water. So you can grow in regions that used to be too dry and you can flourish in regions, regions that used to be so dry that you couldn't make a good crop. But now with more CO2, you, you make a good crop every year, no matter whether it's a drought or not. So uh, these two effects of CO2, the uh, suppression of photorespiration and the uh, resistance to drought are the major benefits of more CO2, which have been demonstrated throughout geological history. You know, that's why plants have these feedback mechanisms because they've coped with fluctuating CO2 levels since life evolved and they know what to do to cope with it. Yes. So are there any downsides then uh, to the increasing CO2? I mean, if we go to 800, I mean, it doesn't look like the temperatures will no, be no, rising. It, it, it will be completely good. Now, let, let, let me be uh, just a little bit careful because I'm not saying that uh, we uh, should not look after um, and suppress real pollution. So, for example, if, if you uh, build a you know, electrical power station with coal and you, you dump out fly ash and, you know, and uh, oxides of nitrogen and sulfur all over the place and mercury, you know, that's, that's real pollution. The CO2 is not a pollutant, but the, uh, these other things are. So uh, part of the problem with this fixation on CO2 is that we're ignoring the real pollutants that really do need to be controlled, that really do harm people because, because we're so busy, you know, selling windmills and solar panels and stuff like that. So uh, I, uh, I'm all for getting rid of real pollutants and we all should be, but yes. uh, don't, don't ever confuse CO2 as, as a pollutant. It's not a pollutant at all. If yes, it is, you yes. should stop breathing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's a great segue. I just wanted to cover uh, before we end here, some of the sort of political side of, of, of this argument. Um, and you know, you sort of mentioned the the, the these uh, wind and solar projects. I mean, obviously, there's there's another agenda going on there. Um, so, in your opinion, how did we get to the present warmest alarmist uh, anti CO two climate narrative that we're uh, faced with today? Well, I, I don't know what can be done to bring some common sense back. It uh, 
part of the problem is the other side has so much money and it has captured the media. You know, it, it's sort of a virtue signaling outlet for billionaires and many of whom made their you know, billions on fossil fuels. <laughs> uh, I think, um, I don't know, maybe the only thing that will really fix it would be to um, encourage some state, some country to uh, do everything that's demanded by the, uh, the climate enthusiasts, you know, get rid of uh, all fossil fuels, you know, run everything on electricity and wind and solar, uh, get rid of meat, you know, uh, all, all of these things. So when, when California politicians talk about doing that, you know, I feel sorry for my friends in California, but if I think about the world as a whole, somebody really has to do this just to show how crazy it is. And so that might be a, one way to solve it. And I say that advisedly because, you know, uh, another one of the crazy virtue signaling movements that of the many that mankind has dealt with was a eugenics movement in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And, um, you know, it had some of the same characteristics of, uh, of saving the planet. You know, it was saving the human race. You know, that's a little bit like saving the planet, isn't it? And so the, the problem with the human race then was that we had this uh, unrestrained immigration of low IQ Eastern European Jews and Chinamen and things like that into America. You know, they clearly were inferior. You could give them IQ tests and they couldn't pass them, you know. The fact that they couldn't read English was ignored. <laughs> and uh, it was that's, that's uh, a problem, a, a problem, right? So it, it was, it was mostly phony, you know, but there were journals and every little town had a, uh, had a eugenic society and people would go and have tea and uh, cookies and talk about eugenics and wring their hands about immigration and uh, and yet, yet it went on and went on and on. And it was especially bad in universities, the presidents of Stanford and Harvard and Alexander Graham Bell, you know, really people you respect. We're big eugenics supporters. And uh, so the, the thing that brought it down uh, was its uh, absurd uh, misuse in, uh, in Nazi Germany. And so after, in, after World War II, that was the end of the eugenics movement. I mean, it, 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 it still sort of continued like a zombie in a few places. They were still sterilizing people in California and a number of other US states up until the 1970s. But it, it didn't have the cachet it used to have because enough people recognize that this is nonsense. This is uh, being abused. And um, so I, I if you look at other movements like this, they, they've typically ended uh, uh, by being uh, over the top at, at some point. And so maybe that's what's required. I, I hope that's not what's needed because it, it's a terrible way to bring something down. Many, many people suffer. Yes. But that would be one way to end it. Another way uh, is it could end peacefully. For example, Lysenkoism in the Soviet Union went on for uh, 40 years uh, during the reign of Lysenko. Lysenko was a agricultural extension agent from 
around Odessa, you know, Ukrainian, and he convinced the Soviet leadership that he could modify uh, the properties of plants, of wheat, you know, apples, you name it, so that it could grow in the far north, that you could, you know, grow apple orchards, and, you know, on the Arctic Circle. <laughs> Uh, it, it was all nonsense, and uh, it, what was even worse was that it, since it violated so many obvious uh, uh, facts of biology, for example, that you could not inherit acquired, you know, acquired properties, uh, he, he announced there's no such thing as genes, so if, if in the Soviet period, if, if you taught genetics, uh, you know, taught, taught about Mendel's uh, wrinkled peas and smooth peas, you know, you were fired from your job or you were sent to a concentration camp, or if you were prominent enough, you're condemned to death. So, uh, you know, when you get a scientific movement like this with the backing of politics, uh, it's always bad news, you know, because the normal feedback doesn't work. You know, you can't uh, make an argument against, uh, you know, political backers, you know, their response is shut up, you know, or else. <laughs> and that, yes. that's sort of what we've reached in climate now. And uh, so I, uh, I do hope that the world will have the sense to, uh, uh, to bring this down in, in a um, as least damaging way as possible. I don't know what that way will be. I bet you one way, which I hope is not the way, but. Sure, and it's it, when I was uh, chatting with uh, Dr. Willie Soon, he uh, commented that he'd cornered uh, Al Gore in an elevator at some conference and asked him point blank, you know, what if you're wrong and there's consequences on the other side of uh, reducing CO2 or, you know, the moving into the alternative energy and, and there's harm mm -hmm. caused by that, who is going to be responsible for that? And that's, uh, that's an interesting question. And certainly if we push down this road of alarmism and that CO2 is the villain and it backfires, um, you know, who will be, who will be responsible for those? Uh, I don't think the IPCC is going to stand up and uh, uh, admit their failure there. No, no one will be responsible. You know, the people who pushed Lysenkoism in the Soviet Union got off scot-free. Yeah. But in the meantime, they had ruined the lives of many people. They had uh, caused the deaths of some. They'd set biology back by uh, decades, uh, but no one paid the price. Yeah. Lysenko yeah. himself, you know, lived a happy retirement, you know, with full pension. <laughs> Sure, of course. And you've described the renewable energy as being governed by an inverse Robin Hood mentality. Uh, can you explain that rationale? Because I think that's a really important uh, comment. Well, you know, green energy is a very good investment because of all of the subsidies you get from the federal government, from the state government, even local governments. And so, uh, one of the reasons that wind and solar have done so well is because of all these subsidies. So you as the uh, investor <clears throat> get a guaranteed profit. It's a very fat profit. And uh, the result of, of pushing this renewable energy onto society though, is that uh, the price of electricity goes up and up and up. And it doesn't matter much to you because you're already rich and electricity makes not much of your monthly bill, it's, you hardly notice it. 
you know, but if you're the gardener who, who uh, mows the lawn, you know, or the barber who cuts your hair, you know, uh, they're not rewarded as generously as you are. And uh, the cost of electricity is a big deal. So I remember not maybe 10 years ago, I was in California at a DOE lab and there was a row of uh, chargers for uh, electric vehicles, you know, virtue signaling vehicles. And uh, there were not many of them used, but one or two were being charged. And I, I looked at the charger and it says, uh, this is uh, electricity at seven cents a kilowatt hour. And uh, this was in Palo Alto. And I said, well, that's a good price. Bye. Palo Alto people are really lucky. When I got home, I looked up the uh, electricity that the average guy, the gardener pays in Palo Alto and it was 35 cents a kilowatt hour. You know, so his betters, you know, who had the electric cars, the Teslas were paying five times less for electricity than he was. <laughs> so it, it's profoundly corrupt. You know, it's just, you know, it's dishonest, you know, and uh, people who do it I suppose in some cases really don't realize what's happening. So uh, you can't blame them. They, uh, there are a lot of unsophisticated people out there, but the, the investors, they certainly know what's going on. And uh, so it, it really is inverse Robin Hood. Yeah. And, then, and then are we witnessing a struggle for control over the multi-trillion dollar energy sector and ultimately control over modern society? Well, certainly I think some people would like that. You know, I think there are many, many motives, uh, but uh, there are clearly uh, control freaks out there who have helped to stoke the panic on climate uh, because they think it will help them get the control that they, they believe they deserve. You know, after all, they're the best people in the world. Why shouldn't they run the world, right? <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, lastly, the, the Paris Agreement, again, seems to be a, a political tool for suppressing growth and, and the reorganization of uh, wealth. Um, should any nation be a signatory to this agreement? Uh, and what are your, th what are your thoughts on the, the Paris Climate Accord? Well, I think it's a stupid accord. I, I'm sorry that US has signed up to it again. I think Mr. Trump was absolutely right taking us out of it and, and of course, Canada too is stuck with it and uh, it does nobody any good except for a few bureaucrats. Uh, it's, um, it's routinely violated, you know, it's a typical cynical European treaty that uh, the reason most of us are in North America is because some ancestor or another couldn't stand living in critical <laughs> Europe. <laughs> And so they came over here and, and now we're importing the same hypocrisy for North America. I'm sorry to see it happen. Uh, yeah. But uh, you can look back over history. There are all these uh, stupid agreements the Europeans signed, you know, uh, back in the 30s, you know, to, to cope with the Nazis, you know, there, there was Chamberlain, you know, peace in our time. We've got this agreement. Uh, I remember my father, who was a British officer, I said, uh, were you surprised when World War II broke out? Uh, oh, no, he says, uh, we, we really were surprised. We, uh, I, I, we couldn't believe it because we'd signed this treaty with the Germans that there would not be a war. And uh, so. <laughs> big, big surprise, the treaty uh, wasn't yeah, honored. I mean, yeah. uh, you can be very wise in hindsight, but they, they really believed it. Uh, maybe, maybe most of them didn't, I, I think the smarter ones, certainly Churchill didn't believe it. 
but my father believed it. Interesting. Interesting. So if uh, Dr. Hopper was to be appointed as the energy czar of America, uh, what would your national energy policy look like? Well, I would uh, well, I'd certainly cut out some of the fat that's grown up around climate. I, I would uh, cut way back on uh, the money that we put into uh, computer models. I, don't, I think it's mostly wasted. I would put more money into observational uh, equipment. For example, uh, I think we've really gotten our money's worth from uh, many of the satellite instruments. And so I would be happy to uh, put more money into uh, observational satellites, ground-based observations, you know, floating buoys. That's uh, uh, very, very good stuff and uh, uh, deserves support, deserves more support than it has now. Uh, I would keep working on uh, far out possibilities for energy, uh, fission, advanced fission, advanced fusion. You know, I think that they're not ready for ready for prime time yet. But uh, if you keep working on these things, every now and then there's a miraculous bright idea that no one saw coming. But it doesn't happen unless you have bright people working away trying to solve a problem. And then all of a sudden the light will turn on to some kid, you know, who, who could have imagined, but, but it happens. And there are lots of cases in history where that has happened, but it doesn't happen unless people are working on it. So I would certainly support, you know, that kind of work. You know, Canada has a wonderful history there in, in uh, nuclear power, you know, the Kandu reactor was a uh, beautifully designed system and uh, but you know that we have not tried to uh, improve on things like that with any seriousness now for many decades and uh, you know the argument really has been uh, non-proliferation you know that uh, this whole technology is so dangerous that uh, we just can't afford to, <laughs> to have any of it and uh, I, I understand uh, the uh, the argument and the statement. I, I don't think it's correct, but I'm willing to talk about it. <laughs> sure, sure. And then what's kept you motivated uh, all these years in the face of uh, so much opposition and the, the, the climate denier labels and, and all the harsh criticism? Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I've always felt that uh, you should tell the truth and you should, uh, if you've got talents, you should try and use them. And uh, you, you should be guided by uh, objective truths as best you can understand them, not by, uh, not by consensus. Uh, and uh, when I look back over history, there are lots of cases where a few individuals who struggled hard have uh, made a difference. You know, I, you know, Solzhenitsyn, for example, in Russia is kind of a hero of mine. You know, he stood up against the uh, system and uh, was uncompromising. And, uh, you know, Martin Luther King was the same way. You know, he's Martin Luther King's a hero of mine. You know, he, also stood up for things he believed in in an honest uh, way. Uh, Gandhi, you know, from my uh, 
birth country was a hero of mine when I was a kid in India. I used to spin cotton because I was a big fan of Gandhi and so on. <laughs> My brother and I, you know, you had a little hand spinner and then you could you could weave the cotton into shirts. It's very nice. Uh, it felt great, you know, on your skin. So I, I've just always admired people who stood up for principle and uh, I'm not in the same class as Gandhi or Solzhenitsyn or Martin Luther King, but uh, at least I'm aiming in the same direction. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. That's great. And uh, what sort of research areas are you presently pursuing or uh, plans to pursue in the future? Well, I'm, I'm working on, on climate related physics and on radiation transfer. And uh, the part that I'm working on now is on clouds, you know, which is uh, very complicated because clouds themselves are uh, quite varied, you know, you've got everything from low clouds to high cirrus clouds, uh, noctilucent clouds, everything you can think of. And the way light propagates in clouds is a lot more complicated than the way it propagates in clear air. You know, I, th I think I understand that part pretty well. So anyway, uh, uh, my uh, co-worker is a Canadian, William Van Weingarten at York University in Canada, he's a physicist. And so together we, we've done a lot of work on radiation transfer and our main focus right now is clouds. Okay. Which obviously a very important aspect of the, the climate system. Yeah, they're very important, absolutely. Excellent. And then Dr. Happer, how could uh, listeners learn more about you and your work? Is there a, a website uh, in particular that I could direct them to? Well, uh, I have some stuff on the uh, website of the CO2 coalition. Uh, I think it's co2coalition.org or something like that. You can find it on Google. And uh, I think the Independent Institute has some of my writings there. I, I did a uh, debate with best schools uh, on climate with uh, the Australian Carolee. And I think that's, you could still access that. So, but if you, you know, if you Google on me, you'll mostly find vilification uh, as for anyone in, in climate. <laughs> so, you know, there'll be page and page after of, uh, you know, you know, climate demon, denier, skeptic, demon, climate yeah. denier, happer, horrible yeah, man, uh, yeah. planet killer, happer. <laughs> so, and then, and then what about at, at, do about that? Uh, and what about at your, at your uh, Princeton, is your school Princeton page for you there with maybe a list of your publications as well? Well, you know, I, I haven't kept that up as I, I okay. when, uh, the problem was when I was still running a graduate group, the students kept it up. Okay. And when I finally retired, I, I didn't take it over. So, okay, okay, fantastic. Well, sir, it's been an absolute. You can find a little something there if you look. Okay, excellent. Well, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. You're a, a treasure trove of information, and uh, certainly uh, have tremendous respect for you uh, uh, sticking up for science and, and reason and, and facts and data instead of uh, falling in line with the rest of the propagandists. Thank you very much, Michael. And you keep up your good work too. We need Thank you. communicators. <laughs> Thank you, sir. That's that's my job here. Okay. Bye All bye. right. Have a great have a great afternoon, sir. Bye bye. Bye bye.